I have a handout which I'll refer to at certain points in the lecture, but feel free, free to go through it. It has something from, uh, Grotius, in Latin from Grotius's Law of, uh, of Plunder, or more safely, uh, Prize and Booty, as it's often translated. And then it has the English translation, the standard English translation. Uh, and then there's some uh, disputes that were done in Leiden between uh, Gormios and uh, Grotius. And then a, what I've called a casual translation of the relevant theses. So I'm neither classicist nor lawyer nor philosopher really, uh, nor theologian nor historian, uh, nor an expert in much of anything. I attempt to be a scholar of some kind, and that's what I'll do. So if there are corrections that you have to the things I say about the law, about the bad, poor translations you hear throughout this, about the theology, the history, or anything like that, please send them to me in neat paragraphs that can be easily paraphrased and inserted into my work with a footnote thanking you. And I promise you'll, you'll see it when, when this is published, uh, wherever it ends up being published, or uh, when I reread it in the future and re reminisce about the things you've done for me. Now, the shrinking of natural law doctrine. I think it'll become clear by the end of this uh, what I mean by the shrinking. I won't spend much time defining it, but two things you probably should know. First, one is that um, contract has gone more or less from being part of law to being a fundament, justification, model, and ideal of law and lawmaking in the modern world. And so many of the things I say about contract are meant to apply also to, to law. That includes oftentimes both the justifications of public law in terms of contractarian theories and the private, further privatization of other areas of law with notable exceptions like human rights law, which is non-contractual in its fundaments and justifications and doesn't admit of, uh, of much contract. Um, and the second is that what you're going to see from Grotius uh, wasn't actually published during his lifetime, although it was distributed. It was written in 1604 or 5 with corrections made in 1607 or 8 or he inserted more folios, uh, leafs into the folio, and he distributed it around to scholars, uh, but it wasn't actually published until it was found. Uh, the, the, the Grotian Library was sold by his family in uh, 1828, and then it was finally, finally published, except for the, the, on the Free Sea. That came out of this, and the doctrines uh, became our, our modern international law about the freedom of the seas. The seas can't be owned, especially because they cannot be brought under the control of any will, either private person's will or the will of a state. Should that change based on technology, which it might in the future, if we have drones hovering over the entire sea, you know, perhaps that will change and then the sea can be owned and air can be owned, space can be owned and cyberspace can be owned. But up until now, the doctrines that we've taken from this overtly into our law are from the free seas. The covert doctrines were slipped in through Grotius's other documents, which I'll attempt to suggest today. And the other thing you should know is the contract law that Grotius helped form is the contract law of most of the world today. The Roman law contract and also the English law of contract. If you pick up Blackstone's English, uh, laws of England, there's not a lot on contract in there. England was still a kind of rural society. It became a much more commercial society, you know, 50 or 60 years after, after that was published. And then much law was imported through judges from the French, from the French quietly. And there's a few books arguing that this is the case. And that means the Roman law of contracts that Grotius gives us eventually um, also became the law of, contract law of England in no small part, which was then brought to much of the world that wasn't ever under European colonization. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, much of the law that came into uh, Eastern Europe 
also then has the character of this law. So this is, it's a very influential doctrine wherever it goes. So what starts before Grotius and moves through Grotius ends up affecting nearly all of us. Um, so, uh, Wim de Kock has written a book. Uh, he's, a, he's a Belgian, a very clever fellow, called Theologians and Contract Law. It's a very good, very big book, and I rely on it for a lot of what I say here. Read him for the truth. Read me for the interpretation. See me for the interpretation. So, uh, freedom of contract is Wim de Kock's translation of what Pedro, Onyata, Pedro de Onyata celebrated as libertatis contrahentibus restitutia. Freedom of contract, the term as an English language phrase, came into general use only in the 19th century as a term of contempt. This was during debates on granting limited liability to joint stock corporations when there were great disruptions thought to be caused by hyper-liberal hyper contractual freedom. The much longer history of the concept is told by de Kock in what could be called, and he does call, the sacred history of the freedom of contract. Its origins are increasingly the object of study as the influence of theology and theologians on the emergence of modern institutions is moving from grudging to open acceptance. Despite that, economic development is often given as the efficient cause of the emergence of freedom of contract and of contractual liberty. Historians do try their hand at the juridical aspects, but often without the feel for the technicality of the law or only whilst lacking contextual sensitivity, historically contextual sensitivity. Too much is said to have been caused by history or by economics in a teleological way that led to the present. Moreover, until nearly yesterday, these fields epitomized a sort of laïcité of legal scholarship, legal and historical scholarship. Despite the long-held line on secularity and legal development, as de Kock notes, evidence is mounting that the legal concepts, that many legal concepts are derived from theological traditions. All the more, some theological positions remain present in legal doctrines after they have been so derived. And I suggest later they remain present nearly as theological doctrines. They haven't fully become philosophical or, or legal doctrines, even if they also have a life as a legal or a philosophical doctrine within law or legal reasoning. To understand what that means for contractual liberalization, it must be remembered that the theologians who provided much of the apparatus of modern contract doctrine we're more concerned with the salvation of souls than with economics or history or law or anything else sub luna. They were not shy to enter into every area of human life where morals or God were wont to go. That was seen as the mandate of a science with so grand a telos as theology. Francisco de Fittoria, for instance, noted that, quote, the office and calling of the theologian are so wide that no argument or controversy on any subject can be considered foreign to his profession. Just remember that when someone tells you, what's theology doing in the university? I say, well, there was this fellow. Vittoria, a great name for someone giving a quote like this. Besides the general mandate, particular interest in, common law, in, in contract law relates to the development of moral theology in the Western church in the later Middle Ages. Promising and promise-keeping, with its formal effects including contractual and quasi-contractual obligations, were natural fodder for theological reflection, especially within a church built with and perhaps on Roman law. The result was the development by theologian jurists, sometimes one, sometimes the other, sometimes both, of a general law of contract, a theorization of Roman law from its ancient action-based beginnings. 
Decock calls their contract doctrine, quote, early modern scholastic contract doctrine, a term I will use but not too often because it's very long. It revolves around the notion of freedom, the will, and mutual consent, the notions of freedom, the will, and mutual consent. Freedom, correctly understood and effected, participates in man's salvation. Now, not long after, this freedom would be extended far beyond the bounds of what scholastic moral theologians understood to be free, to the point where liberty might become license, and thus where, if it is still to be called freedom, freedom has indeed been redefined. Compare freedom as the ability to do what is good, or virtue, to the freedom as a lack of any or all constraints for a simple division. The latter is what 19th century will theorists permitted in their volitional understanding of freedom of contract. Licentious liberty, the licentious liberty as a, as, as a term, came to be the meaning of freedom of contract by the 19th century, especially to those who opposed it. Now, the Dutch juris Grotius, moving back to the, to the 17th century, and uh, routinely, and to my mind rightly, gets credited with forming modern contract doctrine that is still with us. Yet the further claim, also my claim, is that he alters the anthropology of scholastic, is that to get modern contract doctrine from scholastic contract doctrine, he alters the anthropology of scholastic contract doctrine theologically. And I don't believe that this has actually been laid at his door. Onyata wanted freedom of contract to be, in de Kock's words, a quote, the, the juridical principle the juridical principle that best fosters peace and moral comfort amidst scarcity. A canonical understanding of freedom is not far from this. Grotius agrees. Moreover, Grotius affirms the prominent place that contract had ascended to in the moral theological tradition as a principal tool for the regulation of all human affairs, including international relations, and the relations between citizens and the public authorities. But this freedom had erstwhile been in de Kock's words, the freedom to develop virtuousness, to express moral responsibility, and to strengthen mutual trust amongst human beings. With the canonists, the moral theologians were concerned with cura animarum, but connecting salvation of the soul to contractual liberty is almost nothing, is almost never something those who inherit Grotius's contract doctrine do. Soteriology was already nearly absent in Grotius's own treatment of contract for reasons I detail fully elsewhere and partially below. The one glaring absence when compared, for instance, to his Calvinist co-religionists and also to the moral theologians that came before him is any robust doctrine of original sin. Describing the Grotian changes in contract doctrine, if I were to have already done it, would still leave their causes unexplained. And it should be mentioned that there are both practical and theological reasons that Grotius extends freedom of contract in the way he does. Practically, many thinkers in his age had been chastened by theological conflicts. They were prevented, whether by others or by self-censorship, from developing theories that touched the exposed religio-political nerves. Removing contract doctrine from a web of notably Catholic and Jesuit theology, generalizing it in a way, made it palatable to Grotius's national audience of more liberal Protestant, uh, Dutch Protestants, uh, called, uh, some called Remonstrants, and less offensive to the strict Calvinists that governed his land with a watchful eye for popery. Nevertheless, there would have been many ways to accomplish the same, 
many of which would have usefully retained the moral constraints on contract if they expected to gain broad acceptance, or if he accepted this to gain broad acceptance. He could have, for instance, built a general law of contract using uncontroversial and underutilized stories from the Bible. Let your yes be a yes, as the scholastics began, and stories from judges, for instance, respectively. The practical explanation might account, um, the practical explanation might account for why Grotius avoided specific paths, but it falls short of explaining why he developed his thought on contract just as he did. I thus look to the theological, what Grotius actually believed, positing that without accounting for his theology of the will, natural liberty as he calls it, and in your reading you'll see, you'll see a quote that begins with, on in the, if you go to the English version where it's pages 33 uh, and 34, the relevant quote begins, um, the, the, the last full paragraph, or the, yeah, the, the second and final full paragraph, for God created man, autoexusion, free and sui, uh, sui juris, so that the actions of each individual and the use of his possessions were made subject not to another's will, but to his own. Moreover, this view is sanctioned by the common consent of all nations. For what is that well-known concept, natural liberty, other than the power of the individual to act in accordance with his own will? And liberty in regard to actions is equivalent to ownership in regard to property. Hence the saying, every man is governor and arbiter of affairs relative to his own property, etc. It begins with God created man with three different uh, phrases that have different shades of meaning and indeed different meanings. And he goes on to talk about the will and the acts of the will with words like dominium, etc. The Latin you can find on the previous page if you'd like to inspect it. Natural liberty, as he calls it. The question remains only partially answerable. But with a rational reconstruction of his volitional person of law, namely, he who enjoys this natural liberty, much about the character of modern contract doctrine can be explained, and also by way of explaining Grotius's reason for coming to these, this very specific path in constructing contract law. This includes expa explaining Grotius's open-ended moral world of natural rights and peaceful exchange through promise-keeping. His faith and his positing uh, uh, faith in and positing of a certain philosophy of freedom is projected onto contract law so that it too shares the benefit of divine blessing, not as a means of salvation, but as a provision for survival. This was also the moral theological vision that was to supplant the Thomistic vision of the late scholastics that had been present in prior contract doctrine. Explaining the swapping of one vision of man for another in contract doctrine and its basis in, inter alia, an Arminian-inspired philosophy of freedom has not yet, to my mind, to my knowledge, been done. And I'll, turn, I'll direct you now to the theses and the, and the partial translation. And the, the, word, the word that's going to eventually be focused on but not fully explained is, is this word, autoexusios, which is applied by Arminius 25-ish years earlier, or, is, uh, uh, or by, it's applied by the opponents of Arminius only to God. We are hupexusios. God is autoexusios. Grotius takes this word and applies it to us openly, which puzzled me for a very long time until the, I found these theses. Um, and I shouldn't take all the credit until a person who knows a lot more than I did directed me toward these theses and said I might want to take a look at them. So, um, 
so um, more generally, the explanation of contractual liberalization in terms of a philosophy of freedom allows me to interpret the Grotian legacy up to our own time. First, giving an account of what binds the promises that we accept as contracts, what binds them as contracts, as well as explaining why what could be called the liberal prejudice persists in favor of increasing contact, contractual freedom, especially for individual natural persons. Uh, it, you could call it a bias or a prejudice uh, um, tendency. I don't want to make it sound like it's a horrendous thing. It's, not, it's often a very good thing, but uh, the, the tendency in that direction, why there's an inclination in that direction, and it's considered a virtue. Although modern contract doctrine no longer communicates a unified Christian moral vision of cultivating well-formed freedom, it nevertheless still contains a radical notion of Christian moral freedom to reject even what is best for oneself, a jus abutendi over the self, and I'll explain that in a few minutes, if you will. That is a substantially Grotian vision derived from an Arminianism beyond perhaps anything presented by Arminius or the things that would be implied by Arminius. And I say perhaps because I haven't read enough yet to say anything more. So maybe if you see the paper in the future, I'll take the perhaps out or say that it's directly from Arminius. Now, the, this person of law, there's a person of law, uh, he for whom the law is written. It's prior, lo logically and often historically to the law, not necessarily historically, but logically. And then there's the person in law, and this is a distinction commonly made in contemporary jurisprudence. The person in law is the, 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 the mask that's given to prior persons or to artificial persons within a legal system. So the person of law is prior, the person in law is that person that is bearer of rights within the actual legal system. You can be a person, uh, you can be a person and not be a person in law, yeah? And you can actually be dead and still be a person in law when, you're, when your estate is taxed, for instance. Or in Holland, if you gain an inheritance before you're, uh, you're born, you, then it's, it, it's almost impossible for you to be aborted. So if pro-lifers have some plans, they might like, give, give lots of inheritance to the unborn and then uh, you know, be a really ironical uh, way of, uh, of um, um, of um, interacting with the Dutch, whom I love, and I spent a lot of time among, and uh, we even have some amongst us, thank God. Yes. Um, late scholastic contract doctrine has as its person of law, I would suggest, a moral agent with a particular hierarchy of goods, faculties, not far from what one finds in Thomas Aquinas. Put crudely, reason, understanding, intellect, was meant to rule the passions, desires, whether good or bad, by way of the will, which is referred to as an intellectual appetite, uh, or, and the power of choice. That was fundamentally in line with earlier scholasticism, which had rolled in the Boethius inheritance and the Aristotelian priority of first substance in the definition of the person as an individual substance of a rational nature. Any freedom that would be enjoyed could not be detached from reason, and reason was to be ordered to the good. With that person of law in place, Christian morality transformed the jus commune, resulting in a restoration of freedom of contract by the making of a category of contract within the Roman law, which hadn't, exist, hadn't existed prior. You can't pick up Roman law textbooks from 350 uh, AD and say, well, where's the, where's the section on contract? Then you'll open it up and say, oh, here's the statutes that are for, for contracts. You can see thoughts on it, cases that have been brought up, different collections of you know, w w what it is, but you don't actually get a formal law of contract the way you would in a 
for instance, a post-Napoleonic statute book. And when, what Michael said earlier, I think, rings true when you, made a comment, when you asked a question earlier about that. It's closer to a common law tradition. Um, yes. So um, ar arriving at modern law and then stepping back to Grotius, uh, Marianne Glendon, for, for instance, says that modern law touches on nearly every aspect of human life. And er different areas of different law typically emphasize different aspects of the person. It's unclear whether she's talking about the person of law, person in law. I think she's talking about the person of law. So I'll go with that. Contract law emphasizes the will and its activities of that, pers of that person. This becomes obvious in cases of mistake, coercion, and duress, as well as being implicit in doctrines of offer and acceptance in contract. But the will often serves as a placeholder, either a name without a face or a name with too many faces. In discussions about contract, it is variously, legal discussions about contract, it is variously choice, wish, desire, that which is chosen, or would have been chosen if not coerced, that which chooses, evidence of the intention to form legal relations or to be bound contractually, or evidence of consent. And it, the list goes on. It serves so many functions as the point of justification of, brief explanation of, or some ultimate place of origin for contractual obligation. Yet the term does not refer routinely to a well-developed, I'm sorry, the term does not refer to a well-developed concept, nor usually to anything that could be called a philosophy of the will. Well, except when it does. The late scholastics knew what was meant by the will. They knew its activities, its freedoms and virtues, its limits and vices. And they could divide it out from other parts of the soul with some precision, ever since Augustine, at least. Although some 19th century will theories also benefited from a clear-cut doctrine of the will, particularly amongst German jurists, modern contract doctrine generally does not. If there is a coherent philosophy of the will operating, or yet if there is a coherent philosophy of the will operating or operative, a rational reconstruction would need to be done before conceptual analysis is possible. Grotius flirts with a few ideas of the will. He's a jurist, a theologian, and a philosopher. He thinks he's a theologian. We think he's a jurist. No one thinks he's a philosopher. So. I mean, not if you really read him. If you read the first part of The Law of War and Peace, which almost everyone only reads, you'll say, great. You get to the second and third parts, and you scratch your head, and you think, he's brilliant. He's, he knows all of the classics. He's a wunderkind, but, uh, you know, he's, 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 not a, he's not a philosopher. Um, or at least not a first-rate philosopher. Grotius flirts with a few ideas of the will. Often implicit in, notion, uh, in them are notions such as natural liberty and sui juris, which you've, you've seen in the text, and importantly, with the use of his term, autoexusius, all within a theological concept that is descriptively reactionary. It was anti-Calvinist regarding determinism and predestination. Um, he actually came to England to defend against the crown the orthodoxy, lowercase o, of the Remonstrant Brotherhood. So very much on the side of Arminius and the free will thinkers and the ultimately of the Jesuits as well regarding the, fr the, freedom, the freedom of the will. Um, it, a reactionary. This may have caused him to cleave to freedom wherever it could be found and to freedom in its most accessible forms. It also could have led to producing less well-constructed concepts than a constructive theory rather than a reactionary theory might have. So we should remember that. He's not fully a philosopher and he's 
really a man active in this age. He's employed by the, the East India Company and others, right, to actually justify certain things. And that's part of what's going on with Grotius. The vessel that get, gro carries Grotius's doctrine of the free will forward is his person of law, namely, he whom law addresses or is written for. And as I said already, this logically pre-legal entity, a substance, is, is a natural person, a moral entity, who also gives legal personality, is given legal personality routinely as a person in law. There is then a shared vision between law and legal philosophy that could thereafter be used either to justify that law or to make law. Grotius isn't a lawmaker, so law could be made in a Grotian way if you have his, the idea of what his person in law would look like and what, based on what his person of law was. His substantially libertarian vision of man, um, uh, vision of man, his is a substantially libertarian vision of man, a specific form of volitional personhood. It is a system designed for a, a libertarian person of law. As in a system designed for a libertarian person of law, one would expect the person of law to be given broad contracting powers, contracting powers. Said otherwise, where there is the positing of natural freedom of contract, as in Grotius, the, legal, the legally sanctioned freedom to contract should be great, barring system-specific reasons curbing freedom, or greater than it would otherwise have been with a more limited notion of freedom active in the person of law. Now, Grotius is not a, legislature, a legislator, and uh, the life of the Grotian person in law, say, in the European legal, legal codifications, is outside of the scope of this paper. There is, however, evidence for what Grotius would permit in his person, his person in law, based on his person of law, regarding contract in his treatises on the law of Holland, which I won't go into here, and in his claims about normative construction of legal systems that he gives in his Law of War and Peace and in his Law of Plunder. The briefest description of the Grotian person of law that I have been able to rationally reconstruct is he who is the owner of his own liberty as property. So he who is the own, owner of his own liberty as property. Obviously, liberty and property need to be considered and related to ownership in order to make sense of the phrase. So, Wim de Kock uh, puts concisely what I see as Grotius's point of departure in thinking about contract doctrine. He says, the moral theologians reorganized the jus commune tradition on contract around the meeting of individual wills as the natural, necessary, and sufficient cause to create contractual obligation. The result is that legal contract is at bottom a juridical form of natural promissory power. Uh, that was the end of his quote, yeah, the, uh, natural promissory powers. Given social form, exercise in as much freedom as conscience, convention, and material scarcity allow. Grotius deals with promise immediately before contract in his Law of War and Peace, and substantially follows the logic and themes that de Kock has here outlined. The intellectual background to the elevation of the will and contractual obligation is referred to in the literature as consensualism. Uh, Badawine Sirks, a professor here at um, All Souls College, Professor Emeritus at All Souls College, notes that in modern law, it's normal to call an agreement between two or more persons a contract or convention and to use the words as synonyms. Jurists of the 16th century school in Leuven, in Belgium, interestingly, already professed pacta nuda sunt servanda, but this had not yet been translated into a general rule of legal discourse or reasoning. It also deviates from the long-held Roman law principle that clearly separates a formless agreement from a contract as a recognized, uh, contracts as recognized agreements enforced by actions. 
pacts or agreements lacked such enforcement and were therefore considered nude or naked is a better, a better way to think about it. Even stipulation, a promise to do what the other party asks, required a formality in order to be enforceable. Consideration in English contract law is a small example of the sort of extra assurance or formalities that the Roman law once required. At times, specific words were what the Romans wanted. And this is, these are called evidentiary systems of, of contracts. We still have it with the signing of a signature. Yeah? In most Western legal systems, if you get roaring drunk and you sell something to someone and you write it down, you, you will have sold it to that person, even though you were roaring drunk, because there's not a consistent law of consent based on a theory of the will throughout, throughout our, our legal system. And there's a really nice book on that, which is not available anywhere, not because I haven't written it, but because it seems not to be available anywhere, called The Law of Consent by an Australian judge who traces this out. Oriel's library has it, and I don't know anywhere else I've been able to find that actually, actually has it, but look it up if you're interested. At times, specific words were what the Romans wanted, and one could be bound to them even if one did not promise or intend to be bound. Consensualism relies on promises being at the heart of contracts, whereas many forms of contract did not require it or look for evidence of it or care very much about it. A doctrine of consensualism developed by the late scholastics is taken up by Grotius and folded into his natural right theory. Recall my definition, before we go on, of Grotius's person of law. He who is the owner of his own of his liberty, his own liberty as property. When consenting and promising, he does so with that property, which can confuse things. I won't untie that here. I have uh, thoughts on dominium and use and the moving about of them elsewhere that are underdeveloped, but um, and and related to the will. But I want to talk a little more about contract as promise. Writing at the tail end of the legal history that we're here in the middle of. Charles Fried said, quote, since contracts invoke and are invoked by promises, it is not surprising that the law came to impose on the promises it recognized the same incidents as morality demands, end quote. Again, contract was not always invoked by promises, and at times no promise at all was even implied in Roman law. He notes the great expansion of freedom of contract, especially in polities that support individual freedom. Fried goes on to note this including property ownership, wherein, citis wherein citizens have become, quote, quote, increasingly free to dispose of their talents, labor, and property as it seems best to them, end quote. Freed then touches on a philosophically interesting point. For contract involves the act of the will, but not necessarily the will alone, to be bound to will something at a future state or multiple future states. He says, quote, the freedom to bind oneself contractually to a future disposition is an important and striking example of this freedom, because in a promise, one is taking responsibility not only for one's present self, but for one's future self, end quote. Whether one has a, a disposition to it in one's future self is perhaps immaterial, but that one wills to will again at such and such a place or time is, at least from my analysis, imperative. Fried then recognizes that while pro the promise principle is nothing new, Cicero, Grotius, and Pufendorf's discussion of it are his references. Its use has expanded greatly over the years, such that it's taken over the, the, uh, uh, taken over the causa of contract, as the causa of contract. Contract as promise is not only contingent on the will of the promiser, but for it to become obligatory, the promisee's intentional acceptance is also required. Here, intention is understood objectively. Liberty of promising does, uh, does not, for the most, Liberty of promising does not, for most, I'm sorry, I printed this too small. I tried to save paper and it was just foolish. Um, well, maybe not, but 
for reading out of this. Liberty of promise does not, for most consensualist philosophies, theologians or jurists, include the capacity to create promissory or contractual obligations by mere fiat of the individual will. Quasi-contractual obligations and gifts would be something altogether different. Uh, uh, but the origin of contractual obligation in promissory or quasi-promissory activity is fully relevant. Onyata put the results of taking promissory, of taking promissory, promising seriously succinctly when he said of the law of his own time, natural law, canon law, and Hispanic law entirely agree, uh, entirely agree, and innumerable difficulties, frauds, litigations, and disputes have been removed thanks to such great consensus and clarity in the laws. To the contracting parties, liberty had, had very wisely been restored. And that's the phrase from earlier, contrahendibus libertas restitutia. So that whenever they want to bind themselves through concluding a contract about their goods, this contract will be recognized by whichever of both courts before which they will have brought their case, and it will be upheld as being sacrosanct and inviolable. Therefore, canon law and Hispanic law correct the jus commune, since the former grant an action and civil obligation to all bare agreements, while the latter denied them just that. Tukak calls the result the victory of consensualism, as it offers voluntarist account, a voluntarist account of contractual obligation. Freedom of contract grants the contracting parties the possibility to enter into whatever agreement they want based on their mutual consent. Moreover, they could have the contract enforced before the tribunal of their choice. Again, this did not result in the ability to contract anything at any time. Remember, again, you know, I know as a teacher, say it three times and then people remember it. You know. Again, this did not result in the ability to contract just anything at any time. It emerged first amongst jurists who were also moral theologians. While 19th century versions of will theories of contract were characterized by the absence of moral considerations, that's, that's the Koch's words, so much, uh, so much so that the fairness in exchange was seen to contest freedom of contract, earlier versions were ensconed in the world of traditional pagan and Christian virtues and vices, divine revelation, natural law, and practical reason, and so forth. This was a dramatic change. It was not only that Roman contract law did not universally recognize the principle that agreements are enforceable by virtue of mutual agreements alone. Although actions and remedies of various kinds were scattered about the law, there was not even a general category of contract in Roman law until the moral theologians developed one. As far as actionability based solely on consensualist grounds, for instance, in sale or lease or mandate and partnership, those form a very small set of what was on offer in the Roman law. The natural law principle used to turn contract law toward consensualism was that all agreements are binding, supported by the Holy Scripture. Let your yes be a yes and your no be a no. With the victory of consensualism, it became necessary to now to have only three things for valid contractual obligation. First, an animus obligandi, that is the promiser's will to be bound. Second, a promissio externa, communication of the promise Ver externally, it doesn't have to be verbally, but externally. Remember, silence can imply consent in contract sometimes. If, you're, if you and your partner are sitting at a table negotiating as a loan for a house and all the terms are read out and you don't say, I don't agree to these, and at some point you, you leave the room after one of you has signed it, it can imply, you can, it can imply that you have consented to this by not having spoken up. Now, this principle continues on in contractarian doctrines of political rule in John Locke 
if you don't revolt, you've, you've agreed to the obligations of the system in front of you, or if you've benefited from it in some way. So there's all kinds of way that consent can be, um, promises can be uh, tacit and, and committed externally. Um, and, and finally, there's promissio acceptata, the, promises offer, the, the promises offer of acceptance. And all accepted offers are then binding once these are in place. Fictitious promises, such as cases in where one party was not in possession of an animus obligandi, were considered by many not to be binding since that is the essence of a promise. Early modern scholastics contributed by conse uh, consecrating and systematizing this well, as it's called by some scholars, new paradigm. And Lessius and others, so there's a, there's a kind of a Salamancan tradition, and then there's, there's an, an, you have Lessius working in Antwerp that's kind of bringing it up into the Low Countries. And so Lessius and others spread it into the Low Countries where Grotius received it. And at that time, of course, they, they had recently been colonized by the Spanish, and this had been thrown off, and Leiden University was founded where these disputes were were settled um, less than 20 years after the founding of Leiden University and where Grotius eventually taught 25 years later. So it's only 50 years into this uh, new justification of the Protestant throwing off of the yoke of Spain and the, the theological justification of it. The law faculty and the theology faculty were two of the first founded, uh, where they're, 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 they're still working out what to do with the inheritance that they have received from the, from the Spanish and from Leuven, which was the university where they would have gone to up until that point, Leiden was founded to be the new Leuven, the Protestant Leuven. Um, I know some of you are graduates of that noble institution, so I wanted to make sure it got its, got its, uh, its part, played its part. It's hard to underestimate just how invested um, certain Jesuits were in this consensualist approach to contract that Grotius inherits, with the obvious caveat that enforcement had to take place in order for consensualism to work. So that would be the, probably the fourth thing that needs to be present. These, three elements of the contract, and then enforcement. There needs to be an enforcement mechanism. But with the universal enforceability of agreements, they had secured and a guarantee for freedom, a libertas, a value that they esteemed to be priceless. Lessius, in the spiritual and intellectual, Lessius is the spiritual and intellectual descendant of that tradition, and one of the sources from which Grotius collects his esteem for liberty. And those who follow Lessius, such freedom was envisioned by the return of the old metaphor as contract as a form of private legislation. The near contemporary of Grotius, Thomas Sanchez, says, every obligation which does not ensue from a law comes into existence through the private will of man. Adding, so, where the will is absent, the obligation is absent. And further... A, promise, a promissory obligation arises out of private law, which, is, which the promisor imposes upon himself. But no law is binding unless the legislator intends it to be binding. That is, nulla lex obligat nisi uh, legislator obligare intendat. That was published in Antwerp in 1620, only five years before Grotius's law of war and peace, all of which relies on, on Lessius's phrase, voluntas libertatem possidens, that the will is controlled and controllable, either self-regulating or regulable by some other power, such as reason or a self in, in, in Freed's conception. Self-ownership now as a, as a kind of a kind is being sought by way of the will, the wi a will that possesses freedom. Nevertheless, it is not yet called ownership of liberty or anything like that or construed as a form of dominium. 
Yet, one can see the leap to shore from this boat is not far. One curious fact is that there were signs of ownership, more evidentiary ones, that could have been used but were not. Um, de Kock notes that Lessius thinks it is the very sign of ownership that he who owns goods has the arbitrary power also to destroy them, even out of pure lust, such as killing for, for pleasure. And that's uh, perimere voluptatis causa. The careful construal of certain forms of dominium that man could have would certainly make dominium of liberty arguable on such evidentiary grounds. One presumably shows he's the, the owner of his liberty by consenting to limit it and contractually binding oneself with it. That is not destruction of liberty in the total sense, but it could be thought of as destruction of liberty for a predetermined amount of time. The will, we would say at this point, would the uh, time. The will now needs to be interrogated more directly. I'm going to return to Grotius here to interrogate some, some of what he says about the will more, more directly. Um, Grotius's De Jura Praede gives us the major elements of the phrase I'm using as a clue to his anthropology. I'll read it out again. Um, God creates man, auto exusion, free and sui juris so that the actions of each individual and the use of his possessions were made subject not to another's will, but to his own. Moreover, this view is sanctioned by the common consent of all nations. For what is that well-known concept, natural liberty, other than the power of the individual to act in accordance with his own will? And liberty in regard to actions is equivalent to ownership in regards to property. Hence the saying, every man is the governor and arbiter of affairs relative to his own property. God created man free, Grotius says. Theologically, there is no determinism but freedom of the will, which he says is the definition, or at least suggests, of natural liberty. He communicates that faith into a legal reality later in his contract doctrine. Grotius understands natural right and the original acquisition of the right of ownership to be based on control, a persistent occupation by way of the will. And this tells us a bit about what he means by will, although he doesn't give us a theory of will as, or, or direct definition the way Thomas or certain scholastics will. Um, this shows up regular in, regularly in his treatises. It is thought by Grotius to be a logical extension of natural liberty plus natural right. The will in the service of self-defense is more or less a description of active working functional natural right. And of course, self-defense for him includes things like chastity. It's not just defense of one's body in the sense of not dying. It has things that are necessary for life, maybe not a good life, but a life in which one will survive and persist and perhaps reproduce. Um, and self-preservation also, self-defense and self-preservation include for Grotius these things. Regarding sui juris in this definition, there is a juridical use that would preclude a natural liberalism, and I should mention it because I'm pushing hard on uh, suggesting that he's uh, arguing for this natural liberalism. Where sui juris for the Romans meant self-determination or being one's own pater familias, which would come at the end of paternal control, usually after the current pater familias died. In the Middle Ages, sui juris status would be recognized at the age of majority. But Grotius's great legal treatises are not about the law of majority. They're about the law of nature in specific instances, especially in places where that law, where, where law 
has not or refuses to take cognizance. For, for example, un, untamed wildernesses of land or of sea, as well as the moral desert of war. There, law is only provided by the private legislature. Sui juris is best, best understood to be another way of presenting the workings or the workings out of natural liberty in ways that would cause agreements to be forged, promises to be made, and contracts uh, presented to provide order. Recall here that Grotius also teaches that man is naturally sociable. Hobbes follows Grotius 25 years later with Leviathan, but he doesn't follow him wholly. He subtracts the sociability from man. And it's uh, Pufendorf and Locke and others then restore it another 30 or 40 years later. It's very quickly restored uh, into the, into the, into the, into the major, what we understand to be the major conversation. Robinson Crusoe has these capacities even while alone in nature, but he is not meant to remain alone in nature, and so he's going to need to make use of this. Uh, being sui juris, among others, entails exercising the will as a source of order through promise-keeping, which becomes law. Now the, the, the next term that touches on the will uh, in Grotius. In, in, in the law of war and peace, we see this word autoexusios again. And, I'm, I'm, and until recently, I only had his other works as clues for why this strange Greek term is showing up. Yeah? Then when, when these theses came, I, I had approximate, a proximate cause for it because a conversation was going on in his city about this very thing using, using, using this word. Um, it, it occurs three times, with Grotius seeming to use it in the same sense as in the passage from the law, the, the law of Plunder. In one instance, a child, which is no longer living at home, is, is grown and is now altogether autoexusios, at his own disposal. That's a quote. Altogether autoexusios, at his own disposal. Or on his own, in another instance, which is more neutral and just descriptive. It, however, would seem to embolden the claim that sui, uh, claim of sui juris, as I've outlined it, but shade it a little differently, appealing to one's being one's own authority rather than legislature. However, there's not much evidence for just how he wants it to be implemented, and so it does remain speculative. And so far, the evidence I've been able to collect has been what you see in front of you and a few things I didn't present, either because they're in languages that I, I'm not... that I didn't have time to, uh, in, or, or knowledge to get to you, or I don't, I don't fully understand them enough to confidently speak about them. So it does, it does appear, however, that um, the thesis, the, the theses that Grineas and Arminius disputed are approximate, approximate cause of the presence of this. And if anyone knows anything about it, please see me afterwards and tell me you've seen this word before and I might have a clue. Overall, Grotian natural liberty is not uh, naked liberalism, and this is something I wanted to suggest. I, I, he's pushing away from the scholastics, but it's not naked liberalism, or even a form of antinomianism. And originally, one's duties and responsibilities, such as familial responsibility to keep the property for the next generation, the, the patrimonium, were nothing that could be subjected to contract and could be alienated from one by, could only be alienated from one by, say, moral turpitude, so something illegal or completely immoral, or dire necessity, like war. Grotius does not deny those obligations, uh, but neither does he enumerate them. They, fall, they seem to fall outside of what, of, what, of what he considers. Moral considerations are also notably absent in Grotius's understandings of legal obligation, if understood as perfect obligations that are represented in the law. Uh, where they return are in pious advice as to what Christians should do rather than what he must do, uh, say, to avoid sinning. 
Following the apostle, all things are permissible, if not all profitable. As with the apostle, all things for Grotius does not mean everything, but many things, or all things not strictly forbidden by divine law or natural liberty in Grotius's case. Something libertarian, though, is present in Grotius that later becomes definitional of modern contract doctrine. This is especially notable relating to his theological liberalism. It stands against both determinism and predestination. I'll say that again because it's because um, this uh, liberalism. Uh, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I made a note. It stands against both determinism and predestination. God created man free, even free enough to reject God. And this is he follows Arminius in this. That it's a total freedom. It's against the Calvinists who talk about irresistible grace. One is so free that he can destroy his own liberty and can reject God. That's the true meaning of salvation is I was free to reject God, but still, still accepted God, accepted God. So the soteriological vision is very different from one we might have seen um, uh, in our own understandings of theology, unless we're Lessian um, Jesuits. Uh, this will be guarded against by later, by later jurists. Um, and also the implications regarding self-slavery, because if one is fully the owner of one's own will, then self-slavery is one of the obvious possibilities under the doctrine of you know, liberty as dominium. And Grotius is very open about this, that if it's, if it's, if it's death or slavery, you're the one to decide, you can choose, you can choose slavery. It, it becomes difficult to know then what the status is of the will after, after that, because it still seems to function in a similar way. And, and it's hard for me to imagine I can permanently bind my will in that way. But nevertheless, he, he does say that and he's stuck to it. A modern contract doctrine tends to stand against total property of one's liberty, or total property in one's liberty, as the scholastics did, in order to protect that very liberty. Okay, I don't know what the real time is. I think that's five minutes slow, is that right? Um, and we started, uh, and we need to end at the hour, is that right? My, who's, who's in charge here? I, ideally, okay. And then I probably won't get to some of this, so let me... Mm, Okay, I'll say something which, um, what's often missed about Grotius' concept of natural liberty in legal or political analysis is its distance from any spiritual authority outside of rights exercised in nature, um, or any natural, natural spiritual authority exercised um, outside of that. The theologians who incubated the freedom of contract did not imagine contractual ob obligation operating outside of the bounds of what involves both regulation of the body and the soul. In the world of man, law regulated both the internal and the external fora. And here, the, the Protestant part of Grotius's, that's my term, Protestant part of Grotius's thought comes to the fore. The spiritual jurisdiction of law over the soul was removed from the Protestant church with the abolition of confession. With the removal of an external check on the forum internum, conscience was gradually personalized, privatized, and subjectivized. Yet, and this is noted later in, in de Kock's book, the rules of conscience were originally thought to be almost as objective as legal rules. And, and for instance, um, at the height of the influence of moral theology, a theologian claiming to be able to solve a case of conscience without the support of the civilian and canon law tradition was considered to be arrogant. Grotius's notion of man as free, as free created free, and especially the tacit reference to authority in auto exusios 
includes a spiritual freedom from external authorities, that is, non-divine external authorities, for the Bible is still the word of God, as the, the natural condition that persists into civil society and can always be reverted to. If convention has placed or places a church or a body of law over one which does not contravene natural right, which includes protection of life, limb, and the things necessary for life, and allows not natural liberty, self-regulation in practice, then it is to be granted the authority that commands obedience in us. However, spiritual authority, just as moral and legal authority, has its proximate source in he who is the owner of his liberty as property. Grotius' defense of state power of punishment on the private right of defensive war illustrates this, this ably. And I'll give a quick summary and I'm done. It's three shortest paragraphs. In describing the reemergence of freedom of contract as the result of a long development of contract doctrine by the late scholastics, we've been told that a contract has become the instrument of a self-conscious dominus who could decide to do whatever he wants with his private property. Whatever here is not literally whatever, but much more than formally. Um, true enough for the scholastics, but only within necessary limits. Those very scholastics who had freed Christians to arrange their affairs contractually, who had recognized and granted them freedom of contract, did not allow for the rapacity of such newly liberated domini to destroy their liberty with license. There were, more, there were moral breaks, side constraints, and substantive limits, limits on just what could be contracted, as well as in what manner. There were considerations of justice, such as equilibrium and fairness in exchange, that curbed freedom of contract, and thus limited how lawmakers might extend the freedom of contract to the freedom to contract within the law. Grotius instigated a change in anthropology implicit in late scholastic doctrine. He imports a radical sense of unfettered freedom as the normal and natural activity of the dominus's will, or as the normal activity of the dominus's will. He thus makes contractual liberty freer in a sense, as it was now liberated both from its divine telos and from anything like the common good, and even from the need to have any ultimate or proximate end. Notwithstanding such libera liberation, the will was not set by Grotius completely at liberty in his contractual relations. It must never trespass revealed religion or commit any of the few truly egregious sins. But it is no longer required to be building, busy building a new Jerusalem, for its purposes were more mundane, peace and order on earth, which have many possible ways, none being necessarily better or worse. For the, that's according to him. For the moral theologians who develop freedom of contract, contractual freedom had been a, a providential means of our salvation. For Grotius, it is chiefly a means of our survival, now compressed and stretched and spread over the whole world as it was conquered by Europe, and its ideal form in the freedom of the seas that Grotius most famously gave us in his Diura Praedae, or sorry, his law of, law of plunder. Thank you. That's Thank <laughs> you.